0: Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast Today, I am joined in with Zach Allison from the YouTube channel called Nutrition Library. Zach, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, man. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So, Zach, maybe uh, let my listeners know a little bit about yourself. How did you become so fascinated into optimizing human health? Ooh, that's
1: a good question. Yeah, I've been super into health and fitness for a very long time. I guess it started when I was back in high school playing sports and just trying to get into the best shape as possible to just destroy folks on the field. I like to describe myself as like the most average athlete to ever exist. And that's probably like, even to this day, extremely accurate. But yeah, so got super into nutrition. When I let's see, I guess I was in high school, just trying to get super lean. And that kind of carried over into college. And, you know, without sports really gotten like weightlifting a lot and just really trying to optimize my body composition and kind of just aesthetics at that point. And really kind of got to a point, I guess my my junior year where I tried some like anabolic type of stuff, some PEDs and really destroyed my health. (laughs) Like it was a really bad decision. Like I always like to tell people like, just don't go down that route if you don't have to. But yeah, I was definitely at a point in my life where really kind of wanted to test the boundaries, like what my body was able to do. And so kind of jumped on that train for better or for worse and had some really like negative health consequences because of that. And so because of that, really that kind of like tuned me into like, okay. Athletics and performance isn't the only thing. You know what I mean? And so that kind of really sparked my interest in my whole health journey. And that's kind of like in my junior year of college. And yeah, so like ever since then, about I guess that's been like 13 years ago, I've just really been on a health journey to kind of optimize not just performance, but also health at the same time and really kind of see how those two interplay together. So yeah, awesome. And just for my
0: listeners, if you haven't already checked out Zach's YouTube channel. It's called Nutrition Library. When I was at the very start of actually creating my channel, I was actually like putting together a list of like maybe similar channels or people doing similar things. And yeah, you were definitely the standout channel there. So folks listening in, make sure you go and subscribe to Zach at Nutrition Library. He posts some really awesome content. But Zach, I sort of want to go back to like, you mentioned like the PED space, like obviously that's a really popular space at the moment. Let's talk about like young men, like, you know, the temptation for young men nowadays, like wanting results quickly in the gym, maybe not seeing good results. Like, let's sort of explore that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You know, I think most guys, they get into the gym eventually, I think, kind of get to that point where, you know, the first few years of being in the gym, whether it be in like high school or whatever it is, like you see a lot of results, you know, like a lot of increase in strength, a lot of increase in muscle mass, a lot of drop in body fat percentage. And like, that's somewhat addictive, you know what I mean? Like to see that transformation, you know, over a short period of time. And I think you get to a point eventually where you start to plateau. And I think everyone that's been, you know, in the athletic space for any length of time has experienced that. And so, Yeah, like it's very tempting once you get to that point, I think, to really kind of like consider PED use, especially, gosh, I can't imagine for like, you know, guys growing up in like the social media culture that we have currently, which is good for a lot of reasons, but also bad for a lot of reasons. And I think that being bombarded with like images of like sebum 24-7, like the God of aesthetics, you know, it's like, you know, like you just think that's normal, but it's like, that's not normal. You know what I mean? And so like we chase those results to some degree. And there's like a large amount of comparison that happens because of that. And so it's like super easy to just look in the mirror and be like, dude, what the heck am I doing? Like, why do I look like this? And like, to assume, like, to not realize really that like guys like Seabone, like he's been in the game for 20, 30 years, you know, like he's, he's at the peak of his performance and he uses a lot of PEDs and like, he doesn't talk about it. So it's easy for a lot of guys, especially younger guys to assume that like, that's, you know, attainable naturally and it's just not and so yeah i think there's a massive temptation to kind of go down that road and
0: what about like your own personal experience like do you want to just share with my listeners at one stage did you you know did you completely like crush your your natural testosterone production like what actually happened with yourself
1: yeah so i never tested like back then like this was 2011. So this is like 11 years ago and like testing back then was just not something that you did, you know, Um, it was a lot more difficult to get access to like even TRT at that point really wasn't a thing. And so Yeah. I'd never tested my testosterone. The only reason that I was on PEDs was to just get results in the gym. And, and even after I, you know, was on PEDs, I really didn't have a very, like a good recovery process. I didn't get tested afterwards. And so I don't really have like any hardcore numbers as to like what happened to my, my hormones over that period of time. However, you know, like The gains while you're on like the gains in strength and the gains in muscle mass and the gains or the drop of body fat while you're doing things like that are ungodly, you know, like, and it's something that you've never experienced before. And then when you come off of that, there's not just like a drop to baseline. Like there was like a lot of people talk about how, like when you come off of PEDs, you kind of just drop back to baseline and you're kind of quote unquote used to the results that you were getting on PEDs. But like in my experience and a lot of other people's experience, when you come off of that type of stuff, you're dropping below baseline. And so like it's not only are you losing gains, but like your moods destroyed, like your motivation is destroyed. And it was a very long recovery process for me personally. And even to some degree, like I do feel like there's the kind of lingering effects from those cycles that I ran when I was in college. And which is really what kind of like pushed me into the hormone optimization space in the first place was just really kind of like this personal obsession with trying to optimize my performance and health for where I'm at now. Because like Now I'm a 30, I'm a 30 year old guy. I'm married. I got two kids. Like I'm at a completely different stage in life and like performance is still important to me, but it's not, it's not God to me. Like there's other things that are also important as well now.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's really important that we're like um, spreading this message, particularly for the young men. Like, obviously, like, as I said, you know, the temptation is there. If you could go back in time, I guess you'd probably tell them to stay well away and, you know, potentially, look into the other ways to optimize your hormones, which we both talk about quite extensively. So I'd love to get into some of that, Zach, and we'll sort of dive into like, what would you say are like the, the biggest mistakes
1: guys make when trying to like optimize their testosterone levels? Ooh, that's a good question. I think one of the first things that a lot of guys do are the kind of turn to the sexy supplements which I talk a ton about like on my channel, like I'm a huge fan of supplementation, but I think that's a very small piece in the puzzle to some degree. You know, like I think sleep optimization, stress reduction, sun exposure, diet, I think are like the biggest things, really optimizing your exercise, like not overtraining, which I think a lot of guys are doing, like really overtraining and reducing testosterone because of the fact that they're overtraining. I think there's a ton of different things that you could kind of point to that are more important than supplementation. But I think that because of like just the marketing behind supplements, just in general, like we're so bombarded with this message that supplements are like key or necessary, which again, like I'm a huge fan of supplementation, but again, it's just not the most important thing. And I think a lot of guys kind of jump to that as like their only strategy.
0: Yeah. Well, let's sort of unpack like the nutrition side of things. Yeah. Because like, I'm sure that you've experimented with a range of different you know diets over the years or different food groups, things like that, maybe food timings, things like that. Yeah. Let's sort of unpack that. Let's go into like, I guess the macronutrient breakdown. What would you say is like most conducive to, you know, optimal hormonal status for men?
1: Ooh, that's a really great question. And the super controversial and I I like (laughs) it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a very big fan of like moderation in all of your macronutrients. So like a moderate protein intake, a moderate carbohydrate intake and a moderate fat intake. And the reason I say that is like, one, I think protein is one of your more key nutrients when it comes to muscle growth, mood. There's a lot of things that protein is great for. But I think one of the issues that is possible to run into when you're kind of like trying to optimize your macronutrient intake is people tend to kind of like overdo the protein sometimes, which is not often the case but can be the case or either one they'll do that or they'll drastically increase their carbohydrate intake or their fat intake so they'll overdo it on one of the three primary macronutrients and thereby kind of like necessarily have to reduce their other macronutrients which thereby has a detrimental effect on testosterone levels like when protein's too low it's going to lower testosterone. When carbohydrates are too low, it's going to lower testosterone. When fats are too low, it's going to lower testosterone. So like when any of the, one of those three macronutrients gets out of whack and gets too high, like it's going to lower necessarily the other macronutrients and thereby have a detrimental effect on hormones to some degree. Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: As far as like the, um, let's sort of unpack the fat sources. Like just personally, I know like some of my favorite uh, things like olive oil, coconut oil, maybe ghee, butter, and then obviously like saturated fats like, you know, steak and things like that. From a, you know, fat perspective, something that's trending quite a lot now is the polyunsaturated, the poofers. I know we've had a chat offline about the, these polyunsaturated fatty acids. Do you want to sort of explain to my listeners why, you know, these poofers are potentially problematic?
1: Yeah. Polyunsaturated fats are terrible, man. Like that's one of the things I was talking to one of my buddies the other day and he was like, he's kind of like getting into the whole like biohacking thing, which has been cool. Cause it's like, you know, <laughs> we're in this world a lot. And so like, we're super hyper-focused on all this like research and information. And then like to see one of your buddies, like actually get interested in it was kind of cool. But anyways, I was telling him, like he was asking me like, what are some of the things that I should avoid? And I was like, well, honestly, I think one of the only things that you should just outright avoid is polyunsaturated fats. And I think there's two primary reasons for that. One is that you know, your body kind of tends to operate on a, like a good ratio of omega threes to omega six fats. And whenever that ratio gets out of whack, it's going to have a detrimental effect on on pretty much everything metabolically in the body. And so, you know, obviously these are things like seed oils, primarily nut oils as well. And really your only good source of omega three fats are fish and Brain, to be quite frank. Like a lot of people don't talk about that a lot, but that's one of my favorite sources of omega threes. But yeah, so omega sixes, whenever they are in a higher ratio, Then omega-3s, they're going to just destroy your inflammatory pathways, which is going to destroy your immune pathways and throw all that out of whack and have a detrimental effect on just neuroinflammation, which also subsequently eventually also suppresses testosterone production. So, yeah, that's kind of one of the primary ways. But then the second reason that polyunsaturated fats are so terrible is that they just oxidize so quickly. And I think one of the more detrimental effects of polyunsaturated fats, like to some degree, your body does need some polyunsaturated fats, but you can get all the polyunsaturated fats that you need from fish, from beef, from chicken, from eggs. Like they contain quite enough polyunsaturated fats that you should never add them in via seed oils and things of that nature because they oxidize so quickly. And once a polyunsaturated fat gets oxidized, it has some really detrimental effects in the body that go just beyond inflammation. Once a polyunsaturated fat gets oxidized, it almost becomes toxic to the body. And so because of those two things, like really polyunsaturated fats are one of the only things that you want to try to avoid. Yeah. Yeah yeah for sure i've
0: got a i've got a bit of a, a saying with the polyunsaturated fats if you want to if you want to shorten your life yeah go ahead and eat your polyunsaturated fats Early, um, man! as far as you know you mentioned brain and this is quite funny because you're gonna have like two biohackers just geeking out about eating brains
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> on a podcast but from a nutrient perspective obviously brain would be very high in cholesterol i'd imagine and phospholipids mm. and yeah, like, totally. Like subjectively, like, have you noticed any effects by incorporating brain into your diet at all?
1: Yeah, I think the two primary things that I've noticed are improvement in cognition and then reductions in stress, mm-hmm. and they're fairly noticeable in my opinion. And I think the reason for that is because of how high beef brain is specifically in phosphatidylserine. Which I'm sure you're well aware of, and but what's interesting about the phosphatidylserine that's in brain is that it's complexed with DHA, and so like. That a lot of folks buy, and I do this too. But like, I'll take phosphatidylserine that's extracted from sunflower, and that does have a level of an impact on cognition that is quite noticeable, and reductions in stress to some degree. However, typically the phosphatidylserine that is sourced from sunflower is complex with linoleic acid, which is to some degree, you know, somewhat inflammatory. However, because it's in such minute Amounts. I don't think it has a detrimental effect. However, what's interesting is like, especially within the research, there's a kind of a divergence between the phosphatidylserine that is sourced from brain versus when it's sourced from soy or sunflower. And I think a large reason for that is because of the fact that the phosphatidylserine that is found in brain specifically is also complex with DHA, which also has further health benefits to it. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: I completely forgot about phosphatidylserine. That's like one of the um, the stealth like anti
1: cortisol supplements that I don't know. I just, just keep forgetting about it. But um, I hate to interrupt you. But what's interesting on that note is that you know it gets a lot of attention for its ability to reduce cortisol. But the only studies that have shown that phosphatidylserine actually reduces cortisol have been the studies that exclusively use brain derived phosphatidylserine. Wow, And so a lot of companies like to market their phosphatidylserine product as having the ability to reduce cortisol, but it's only the brain derived phosphatidylserine that actually reduces cortisol, which is actually that massive divergence that you see in the research is because of the fact that brain derived phosphatidylserine is complex with the DHA.
0: But I mean, like the percentage of um, products in the market that actually list their phosphatidylserine as as extracted from brain, like how many
1: It's only a very small percentage, right? Oh, there's none. So because of the likelihood of mad cow disease, it's actually illegal to produce it now so you kind of have to buy like beef brain <laughs> from like australia actually so this is actually in america so in america it's illegal to sell brain derived serine or produce it at least it's not illegal to sell it but it's illegal to produce it brain here in america is classified as a like a hazardous material and so <laughs> butchers are actually required by law to throw away beef brain when they're butchering cows which is pretty interesting
0: yeah dude that's crazy how do you go about actually cooking like the beef brain yourself?
1: Oh, I don't, I don't cook it. I get it freeze dried, but it oh. tastes really good. I just dry scoop it, man. It's <laughs> yeah. So it, it actually tastes pretty good. It's got like a very like, savory flavor to it, a very interesting flavor to it but yeah it legitimately does taste good but there's a couple of different companies that produce beef brain like freeze-dried beef brain it's very hard to find but once you find it you know it and it's uh it's one of my favorite supplements <laughs> yeah,
0: awesome as far as some of the other like i'd imagine there'd be other nootropics slash peptides found within beef brain like other growth factors things like that right
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Yeah, I would assume that there is. I would assume that's one of the reasons that, that there's like a noticeable kind of like improvement in cognition, even apart from like when you compare beef brain supplementation to like phosphatidylserine from soy lecithin, like there is even like an experiential difference there. And I would assume that that's because there's other compounds that are found in the beef brain, like, you know, Nerve growth factors and things of that nature that are, that are just present in the tissue. And there's probably some choline in there as well there's sphingomyelin, I think is what it's called. I'm kind of blanking on the enunciation of it right now, but these kind of like choline molecules that are like precursors that also have some fairly interesting impact on nerve growth and cognition and things of that nature. But there's no studies really, like no one's assessing brain specifically for its nutrient content. Like you can find some like rough estimates on phosphatidylserine content and DHA content, but when it comes to like the growth factors, there's really not any hardcore research on really any organ supplementation for that matter. So it's kind of a gray area right now in the research, which is somewhat frustrating. But at the same time, like I do think eventually we'll kind of get there to where we're somewhat interested in seeing what's in those things.
0: Yeah. No, it's definitely an exciting space. I was just, I was just imagining yourself and one of my mates at school. Like we're all eating brain. And I just shout out to you, like, bro, I can feel my BDNF increasing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like legit, you know, like BDNF is like, brain derived growth factor, like it's heavily linked to like depression and mood and things of that nature. So I I don't even think that there's like the, the benefits with things like beef brain stop at cognition. Like I think they do extend to things like mood as well. Now, how much, actual peptide is in the peptide you know bdnf like how much is actually in brain and actually passes through the gut lining and actually survives the stomach and all that kind of stuff is somewhat arguable but at the same time like i think it's a i can at least dream and hope that i'm getting some so
0: yeah what about some other organs i mean like um yeah curious to know if you've experimented with other types of organ meats as well like recently included some um yeah particular organ meats in your diet
1: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of brain, liver. Those are like my two kind of key ones. A lot of guys are big fans of heart as well for like the taurine content and the, the CoQ10 content. You know, I supplement with taurine. So it's like, you know, like I don't prioritize it because one like buying freeze dried heart or finding good heart that's like tasty is fairly difficult. So like, it's not something that I personally supplement with, but liver especially, I think is like one of the key supplements that I think most men should supplement with. Like that's kind of like one of the foundational supplements, in my opinion, for guys, especially that have honed their diet to some degree and really kind of like honed their micronutrient content within their diet, especially because, you know, for a lot of guys taking like a multivitamin is a good idea to some degree for a short period of time for like one to three months to correct any nutritional deficiencies. But I think beyond that point, I think the stress should kind of fall on the diet for providing micronutrient intake. And at that point, I think dropping a multivitamin and kind of shifting towards taking a liver supplement is a really good option simply because liver contains a ton of micronutrients that are extremely difficult to get through the diet. Namely, things like vitamin A, like preformed vitamin A is extremely difficult to find in nature. And copper, I think is another huge micronutrient that's found in liver that is super crucial in balancing out zinc intake. You know, like, I think you've talked a little bit about this before, but like, you know, zinc's really easy to get because it's, super abundant in red meat. So like any muscle meat that you're eating from a cow, you're going to be getting a lot of zinc from. And so like I eat a ton of red meat, like, like a pound a day. And so like, I'm getting tons of zinc. So I'm not supplementing with zinc. Like that's not something that's on my, on my regimen, but because I am getting so much zinc in my diet, I do feel the need to also consume foods that are high in copper and livers is literally the most copper dense food on the planet. And so I think it's super critical to consume liver for the purpose of balancing out zinc. And then again, going back to vitamin A, like vitamin A is really only found in liver, maybe eggs and specifically that preformed vitamin A. Like a lot of folks don't realize that like all the carotenoids that are found in like peppers and and tomatoes, like, I think the last time I looked, you needed like 600 times the amount of carotenoids in order to properly process those carotenoids and actually turn them into active vitamin A. And so it's just not practical to get your vitamin A from plant sources. Like you really need animal sources in order to properly get that vitamin A.
0: But Zach, I thought, I thought a carrot, one carrot could give me enough vitamin A.
1: (laughs) (laughs) heck no, man. Heck no. What are you thinking? (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. There was actually a super interesting study on vitamin A in adolescents. I think they were hypogonadal adolescents. They split these guys, technically they're kids, but they split them into two groups. They gave one of them TRT. Like imagine this 12 year olds on TRT. (laughs) And they gave the other group vitamin A, like preformed vitamin A. And at the end of the study, they could not tell a difference between the biomarkers of the two groups, which I think is super interesting. So there is some suggestion within the research that vitamin A has some level of like an anabolic effect and helps to signal. Maybe it is a signaling molecule within the body. It definitely has a large impact on immune function and bone health and things of that nature. And so, yeah, I'm just a huge fan of getting vitamin A through liver because it appears to be one of the most efficient ways to do that
0: and i'm pretty sure retinol at some stage i remember maybe briefly seeing a study of it upregulating potentially dht or improving yeah
1: yeah yeah it just appears to be like overall androgenic which i think is something that most guys should be looking for now i guess there's an argument to be made that like if you're you know struggling with like prostate issues or hair loss or things of that nature that you wouldn't want to intentionally like shoot your dht through the roof But for most guys like DHT is going to have positive effects on mood, cognition, muscle accumulation, physical performance, mental performance, you name it. So, again, like I'm a huge fan of not just optimizing testosterone levels, but also optimizing DHT levels, which I think DHT just gets a really bad rap. Mainly because guys that are talking about DHT are typically on TRT and have, you know, super physiological levels of testosterone. And when you have super physiological levels of testosterone like you're also going to have super physiological levels of DHT, which will have detrimental effects. And so for guys that are natural though, like you really want to optimize and increase DHT levels and testosterone levels as much as possible, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're discussing this because obviously DHT is a big, big topic in terms of, um, yeah, particularly young men that are like going down the path of like hair loss medications. And then Mm -hmm. even for years after stopping, they're suffering from these really devastating side effects such as you know loss of libido depression things like that let's actually like go into some of the DHT boosting strategies i don't know i've got my huge repertoire of ingredients for that but yeah i'd love to hear about your strategies for boosting DHT
1: yeah my strategy really isn't for boosting DHT per se but it's eliminating things that are going to decrease DHT and so the main thing for me is i eliminate Lignins. So lignins have a super high ability to limit the 5-alpha reductase enzyme, which is the enzyme that converts testosterone into DHT. And there's actually some supplements out there like Panax ginseng and, and fenugreek that get a lot of attention, which I'm somewhat like they're maybe applicable in some circumstances, but those supplements actually increase testosterone by decreasing DHT, which is you know, not a good plan and not a good strategy at the end of the day. But so like I'm avoiding supplements, they're going to decrease DHT. So things like curcumin, just a lot of supplements to be quite frank are like one of the, the key kind of like qualifications for a supplement that I take is like, it has to have the ability to not You know, lower DHT. Like that's something I'm like actively looking for for any supplement that I'm taking. Just making sure that's not inhibiting that five alpha reductase enzyme. But going back to lignans, I'm eliminating things like, and this is going to be like somewhat controversial, but like things like sweet potatoes. You know, like sweet potatoes have a lot of lignans in them, and eliminating grains, but specifically and only whole grains, which again is somewhat controversial the brand portion of rice and oats specifically have been shown to potently like super potently inhibit the five alpha reductase enzyme and even wheat as well i'm not like super anti-grains but if you are going to consume grains i personally do things like white rice and white potatoes and even white bread. So like my wife makes like super, super delicious, organic, like homemade white bread. And yeah, I don't notice any detrimental effects from those things specifically. Now, like even like the white bread is somewhat controversial because there's some research to suggest that gluten also hinders the conversion of testosterone into DHT, but it only appears to occur in men that like have celiac disease. And so guys that are sensitive to gluten, you will experience some level of inhibition of that five alpha reductase enzyme and thereby experience a reduction in DHT. But for guys like me, like I got the genetic test done several months ago and I'm not sensitive to gluten, which is amazing. Like I <laughs> was like the best, the best news I ever got. <laughs> And so after I got that test done, I actually added white bread back into my diet in order to, you know, just increase my carbohydrate intake for performance purposes. But, you know, I stay away from whole grains, like whole grain wheat. I don't do simply because of the, you know, the phytic acid and the oxalates and all the anti-nutrients that are found specifically in the bran of grains. Yeah. What about fruits? Big fan of fruits. You know, like I think in my opinion, like the base Diet for a human would include things like meat, fruit, raw dairy and eggs. Like I think those are like the four foundational kind of like food groups if you want to call them and specifically raw dairy. Like processed dairy I think is it's not terrible because it still has a lot of micronutrients in it, which is huge. And raw dairy in dairy in general has a lot of vitamin A in it as well. And so I'm a huge fan of dairy. I'm not personally super sensitive to dairy, but I know a lot of guys are. And if you are sensitive to dairy, I think the best thing you can do is find raw dairy. You can find raw whey. And the reason that raw is so much better than just process for so many folks is because of Dairy gets a a really bad rap, but the issue with dairy really at the end of the day is the fact that it's being processed at super high temperatures, which denatures the proteins. And so when you denature the proteins, specifically the casein proteins that are found in dairy that makes them really allergenic. And so a lot of guys have, you know, allergy responses to dairy specifically because of the processing that dairy goes through in order to kind of get to the shelf.
0: Yeah. Also, when you mentioned um, we sort of skimmed on the the vitamin A, let's also look at some of the other fat-soluble vitamins because again, I think that these also get they're sort of underutilized in terms of improving hormonal health. Like vitamin A, we know is positively associated with testosterone production, sperm health, fertility. But so is D, so is E, so is K two. So let's sort of unpack that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right, man. Like the fat soluble vitamins, in my opinion, are some of the more important vitamins. And, like, obviously they're all important because like, the definition of a vitamin is like when you don't have enough of it, <laughs> there's a disease that actually comes along with it. So, like they're all important, you know, at the end of the day. And especially when it comes to hormone production, the most important ones appear to be vitamin, like the fat soluble vitamins, as well as the minerals. And so that's why you see you know, such reliable improvements in the status of testosterone when you add things like zinc, magnesium, and boron specifically into the diet. It's because they seem to be super integral just for the production of testosterone in general. I'd actually be curious to hear your thoughts on the fat-soluble vitamins.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I I was under the impression at the very beginning that like all of these fat-soluble vitamins are there to basically when I looked at them initially, they were like mostly related to immune health. And then I was like, oh, let's see what effect, you know, maybe vitamin D, vitamin K2 has. A lot of them also act as pretty potent aromatase inhibitors as well. Mm. Like very, mm-hmm. very high dose, um, you know, K2, you know, vitamin D very high dose. Like some of these are very powerful in, in that regard as well. So I think I, I want to highlight that for some men if they're already having like maybe low estrogen symptoms, which again. That's also debatable because, you know, there's people out there that say that there's no such thing as low estrogen, but I think there can be. I think, you know, if a guy has low T and is also megadosing some of these aromatase inhibitors, then they can run into a bit of a trap there. But, um, yeah, subjectively, from my experience, like utilizing some of these fat solubles, I prefer to get my vitamin D from the sun personally, like, and only maybe in the winter, like, I'd use, a, you know, Vitamin D drops, like actually on my shoulder, I drop a topical, but yeah, I'm sure you'd be quite similar there in that regard.
1: Yeah. I think vitamin D is one of the more important ones as well. I think that's one of the more closely linked ones with hormone regulation simply because vitamin D actually operates as a hormone. it's like one of the the unique vitamins that actually acts like a hormone, like actually docks two receptors in the body and causes like physiological responses, which is super interesting. I've been getting super like, kind of like down the rabbit hole of like light therapy lately. And yeah, I think it's super interesting. Like getting vitamin D from light definitely appears to be more biologically active than oral supplementation simply because like one, like from an ancestral perspective, like there's not a lot of vitamin D in nature. Like when you consume it orally, like it does exist in eggs and in fish, but outside of those two things, like it's fairly difficult to get a lot of vitamin D into the diet. And so because of that, like the body I think has really adapted to utilizing the sun in order to produce adequate amounts of vitamin D. And so like I've recently become a huge fan of like phototherapy for the purpose specifically of vitamin D production. There's not a ton of research on it to be quite frank, but like what research does exist definitely seems to suggest that like ultraviolet B versus ultraviolet A seems to be a better source of light for the purpose of increasing vitamin D levels. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts like do you have like a specific protocol when it comes to like light exposure, like sun exposure? I mean, (laughs) you're in Australia, so I'm sure you get a lot uh, here in Tennessee, man, we don't get a lot of, a lot of sun in the winter. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. because um, like, I had a friend ask me the other day is like, you
0: know, what are your thoughts on actually sunning your balls? And I was like, man, I've been doing this for a number of years now, but I think what's different with the way that I approach it is that I literally do it for like, three to four seconds a day. Like it, it, I, I don't do the like two minute, three, four, five, like the long bouts of sun exposure. I literally just do it as like a quick stimulus to quickly like trigger ATP production. I don't want to overheat. the We know about heat, heat damages the skin. Yeah. but yeah, literally like two, like three to four seconds, like quick flash. <laughs> and then, you know, are honest. people around when this happens? Oh yeah. I got the whole, all the neighbors are watching. Whilst <laughs> <I don't know. laughs>
1: That's <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah. I've been, uh, I'm actually doing a video on this right now, like doing research for it. And it's super interesting, man. Cause like almost every ounce of research that has been performed on like the relationship of like phototherapy and testosterone has shown positive results. Mm. And so like, you know, like we have this, like this epidemic currently of like low testosterone globally and I do think one of the large contributing factors to that. Uh, like there's a ton of contributing factors, but I think one of the large contributing factors is the fact that we're just not getting in as much sun as we have historically, you know, like our bodies are adapted to get a specific amount of light per day in order to optimize vitamin D production and to also stimulate the, the HPG axis in order to kind of initiate that top-down stimulation of testosterone. And like, when we don't get that either through the eyes or through like skin exposure or direct exposure, like I think there's actually a good amount of research to suggest, just at like direct exposure of the testes um, to infrared light, but also red light and UVA and UVB, which all come from the sun. Like all of those forms of light seem to have some level of effect on on hormone production, which I think is super interesting.
0: Yeah. And then obviously like there's different, I know there's different like devices out there. Did you sort of dive into like specific wavelengths and um, have you looked into like, duration of use because i think a lot of guys actually like overdo it like just like we do with supplements a lot of guys overdo it with the red light as well
1: yeah i think that's very possible like there is some research to suggest that like overdoing it can actually have detrimental effects like there's been some studies performed in rams for instance that exposed rams to like the same frequency of light that mice were and the mice experienced an increase in testosterone and humans experienced an increase in testosterone but when the rams were exposed they used a much like higher wattage and it actually decreased testosterone and fertility as well so there is like this happy medium you know like i am kind of like under the impression that like as long as you're not stepping into like that, that place of like being uncomfortable kind of like your skin. You know what I mean? Like when you're in the sun, like it feels good for like the first like 30 minutes, like direct sun exposure at like high noon, but then like 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours go on. It's like, you start to feel like an actual pain sensation. And I think that's kind of where you kind of step into like, okay, now you're starting to do detrimental effects to the human body. And so I think it's somewhat intuitive in in my opinion. Like if you're, If you're doing that type of therapy and you experience, you know, any negative consequences, like physical pain while you're doing it, it's like, that's probably having some type of detrimental effect on hormone production as well. So yeah, like, I don't think like the research is really clear right now, but I do think to some degree that I think there's an an intuitive approach that can be used to really optimize that area of life.
0: Either one of us has to do a video. I sunned my balls for 30 days and here's my (laughs) test.
1: There's some videos out there, man. There's some pretty crazy results. You know, like I've never really done like a pre-test and post-test, but like I would assume that like there's definitely like a positive effect from doing it.
0: Yeah, you know, with some of the um, I was just thinking about like some of the the research. Like, imagine being like a male male fertility or male sexual functioning researcher, and like their job is to count how many times a male rat mounts to a female rat. Imagine like that's your job and you come home from work and your wife's like honey how was your day
1: he's like yeah i counted mats,
0: male rats
1: <laughs> i jerked off four rats today to get some semen samples it was terrible <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah man it's it's uh it's funny man there's some some good stuff though yeah I'm, I'm super interested to see like if any further research actually comes about on this like i think there's some definite like special interest in like light therapy not being a thing like the TRT industry is a multi-billion dollar industry now and i think a lot of people don't give that credit like there's a lot of marketing behind the TRT industry right now and so it's really in the medical industry's best interest that we have low testosterone. And so like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but you know, like when you follow the money, you can figure out a lot of different things. And I think this is one of those things where there's just not a lot of money behind doing research on phototherapy because it's not, you can't patent these things. You can't sell them. You can't build massive pharmaceutical companies around phototherapy. So there's just not a lot of money behind the research here, which is somewhat unfortunate. Yeah.
0: As far as um, like, let's look at some of the like medications again, because there's many different medications that have been shown to have, you know, negative effect on hormonal health. Do you want to sort, maybe uncover some of the common ones that maybe guys are using that they are maybe not realizing that they're having a negative effect on their hormones?
1: Like specifically like supplements?
0: Pharmaceutical medications.
1: Oh like- yeah. Yeah. From my understanding, like a lot of pharmaceuticals do, I'm actually not super familiar with the pharmaceutical research and their like direct impact. Like I know things like anti-androgens, things like finasteride, and, and drugs of that nature yeah they'll help you keep your hair but it's like all the other side effects i think it's just if you're going to use something like that using it topically is definitely the way to go but i'm curious to hear your opinion on this like what are some some pharmaceuticals that are you know somewhat detrimental to androgen status
0: yeah so like metformin has been shown to like increase shbg and and lower free testosterone by up to like 20 percent, i
1: believe Mm. you know if that like extends to supplementation of berberine There's no research
0: on whether berberine impacts SHBG. If anything, although there has been some studies looking at its effect on sperm count, I don't think it'd be much of an issue with berberine in in moderate doses. But also, like, other categories, for example, SSRIs, like selective serotonin Mm -hmm. reuptake inhibitors. Oh, totally. Through the increase in prolactin having a downstream Mm -hmm. negative effect on testosterone secretion, there's so many... And then also some of the um, over the counter like painkillers like mm-hmm. ibuprofen at high doses again not not like common like maybe once a weekend or something not going to have a huge effect but um yeah like daily use of painkillers like again through the opioidergic pathway mm-hmm. again yeah. I think is actually one of the pathways in which lions main lowers libido maybe it's not yeah. so the um the DHT inhibition. Maybe it's the
1: opioidergic action of them. Yeah. Um, it's a fancy word, man. That's a fancy word right there. <laughs> opioidergic. Yeah, I'm to I use that I like that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. But I think it's super interesting is to kind of like extrapolate that research from pharmaceuticals. You know what I mean? So it's like, we know that there's detrimental effects from SSRIs when it comes to like androgen status and kind of just even, you know, neurological status. So like, when you increase serotonin, it's going to you know suppress dopamine, which is going to have like a negative impact on on motivation and things of that nature. It's like what I think is interesting is to extrapolate that data into like more natural stuff. So it's like okay, if these pharmaceuticals are doing the, having these negative impacts through these pathways, like what are some natural things that a lot of people are doing that also maybe there's no research there yet on the detrimental effects, but like the metabolic pathways are matched up to um, to such a large degree that you can kind of like infer that like, well, if this pharmaceutical lowers this and has this detrimental effect because it lowers that, like maybe this supplement or this food group could also do that, you know? Yeah. Um, And like, that's from what I remember, like that's one of your primary kind of issues with, with ashwagandha, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, the um, serotonin boosting aspect of ashwagandha, but it's interesting, yeah. though, like that, like the ashwagandha almost overrides that rule because, like, yeah, mm-hmm. whilst it's increasing serotonin, it also increases testosterone and lowers cortisol. But it's just like a sneaky little stealth effect that ashwagandha can have on guys that are sensitive, like who already have like high baseline serotonin, mm-hmm. and they just cannot tolerate ashwagandha because it like has that numbing effect. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. And I think it also like kind of builds up over time. You know what I mean? Like, and this is my experience with ashwagandha. Like when you first start taking it, it's like, oh man, like this is a much needed like stress reduction, but I think your body eventually kind of like adapts to it. And so like you adapt more so to the positive effects. And then once that happens, then you become more aware, so to speak of the negative effects. And so it's like, as you extend, and this is like with a lot of supplements that I've experienced, especially herbal supplements that like when you initially start taking them there is that positive effect that you experience but then like over time it's like oh man like the positive effects diminish and then once they diminish then you start to kind of notice some of the negative effects and really to some degree this has been my experience with almost every herbal supplement like what are some herbal supplements that you used to be a huge fan of and you're like eh, not so much anymore
0: well, dude, when you mentioned ginseng before, I used to abuse ginseng when I was young. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's like on PubMed, you can search um,
1: ginseng abuse syndrome. <laughs> it's actually a thing. Uh, gin- no way. Were yeah. you like getting it from like a drug dealer at your school or something, like behind the bleachers? <laughs> yes, yeah, sneaking
0: into the uh, the school cabinet, like the herbal herbal medicine dispensary. <laughs> Get it, um, and, you know, got busted for stealing. that. No, i <laughs> I used to I used to use mega doses of ginseng. Like this is when I was maybe like eighteen or nineteen, around that age. And I knew about what it was doing. I knew like subjectively how I was feeling from it. But only until I stopped using it was when I realised how damn like irritable slash anxious it would make me, and like really? how like ridiculously awkward I'd be socially as well, mm-hmm. like.
1: Yeah, that's actually very interesting. You know, ginseng's somewhat dopaminergic, which is like where you kind of experience that increase in energy and motivation and mood. But like dopamine does that. Like it makes you kind of so laser focused yeah. that you kind of become not aware, like socially of like how you're perceived by other people because it suppresses some of like the, the serotonergic and like the oxytocin, if I got that right. <laughs> um, so like the oxytocin is like that social bonding neurochemical. It's like a neuro hormone, so to speak. And when you like increase dopamine to a really large degree, it suppresses oxytocin and makes you really, like you said, like super kind of like not self-aware in social settings, which I think is super interesting, which is like at the end of the day, you have to kind of like when you're doing nootropics and like experimenting, you have to realize like necessarily sometimes when you increase one area of cognition, it'll actually suppress another area of cognition. And like social behavior is a really underrated, you know, area of cognition to some degree.
0: Yeah. It's like a trade-off. And then it's also like a time and place for these things. Like let's say Mm -hmm. if I'm in a library, for example, and the arousal levels are like super low, like, general, like body state, not like sexual arousal, but like, you know, intellectual arousal. Um, (laughs) I need some ginseng. I'm glad you clarified that. I'm glad you clarified that. (laughs) Even like um, also subjectively when I used ginseng, like it would have the most warming effect on the body. Like I subjectively feel really warm and hot Mm. all the time. Um, And I remember just being like, just my cold tolerance was improved so much. And if you have a look at some of the, like if you consult with like a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, they literally say, do not prescribe Korean ginseng for young men. That's what they they literally say, do not, because they know that it's like, it's just not, not agreeable with um, a young man's constitution. I understand why.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. I think there's also some like, like rhodiola, for instance, I think is another one, like another adaptogenic herb, kind of like panics ginseng to some degree. So it's, it's somewhat stimulating, but also kind of stress reducing at the same time. But I think a lot of those adaptogens also activate like neuropeptide Y. And like, from what I remember, like that's strongly linked with like heat tolerance and so it's like, there's like this aspect of like, you become tolerant to heat to some degree when you're taking adaptogens, which is obviously a form of, of stress to some degree, which, you know, maybe explains, you know, neurochemically that, that specific reaction that you were experiencing.
0: Yeah. Also like, as far as like, and now that we're on the rabbit hole of like ginseng, I remember there was some, some pretty cool research on it, like interacting with like morphine tolerance as well. Just
1: like, yeah,
0: you can do that. Have you seen some of that research?
1: Yeah. I've run across it. Like, I don't think there's any like, you know, surefire mechanism that's been identified as to that. I would dare to say that it's suppressing the morphine like Agmatine does the same thing. Right. So it's like, it's kind of suppresses the high from morphine so that when you take morphine away, you don't necessarily kind of experience the withdrawal symptoms. Now I'm just speculating there. I could be completely wrong, but yeah, it is fairly interesting. Like, I think there's also some other uh, studies with Panax ginseng in reference to like nicotine withdrawals. Like when you co-administer Panax ginseng with nicotine and then you take both of them away at the same time, there's less of a withdrawal symptom, which is super interesting. And I think it might have to do with like the NMDA receptors and kind of like modulating some of those, you know, neuropathways pathways that I don't think are super clear yet though. Mm.
0: The whole rabbit hole. If I had a, if I had a, like a massive whiteboard, which I want to actually buy one just to like just list out all the herbs and then list out like Mm -hmm. common things like caffeine, nicotine, you know, carnitine, and then just look at the different pathways, the intersecting mechanisms. It's so much fun. Like only, only we would find
1: (laughs) it. I actually think that's like actually somewhat necessary to some degree with like herbal supplements. You can probably throw caffeine, nicotine in there as well, because when they do one thing, they also kind of like, you know, do this negative thing over here. They're very similar to pharmaceuticals in that regard. And that like pharmaceuticals are super effective at doing specific things. But a lot of times when you do those specific things, you also are doing a detriment to other areas and cause you know, side effects and a lot of herbs the same way. And so I think it's important to understand the mechanisms of action when you're taking something, because, you know, again, with like, ashwagandha, like understanding the, the metabolic pathways of what it's actually doing. Cause like stacking something like ashwagandha that decreases cortisol with another compound, say like, you know, brain derived phosphatidylserine that also lowers cortisol can actually lower cortisol too much. And so it's important to kind of realize some of the cross-acting mechanisms so that you're not, you know, overdoing one specific pathway and screwing your body over at the end of the day. <laughs>
0: For sure. For sure. What about as far as like merging blood work with symptoms? Like how do you go about how much emphasis do you place on blood work
1: versus how a guy is feeling? That's a really good question. You know, I think blood work's important. I don't think it's like the end all be all. Like I think how you feel should be like the biggest determinant of the protocols that you're putting into place, but it can also give you a good snapshot of why you feel, how you feel, if that makes sense. And so I think, especially when you're starting out a health journey, I think a blood test is really important because it'll give you a snapshot, like a super accurate one of why you feel the way you feel and kind of give you direction and guidance on what you should be doing and implementing. Now, after those initial blood tests I'm not a huge fan, you know, of like getting constant blood testing, you know, like as long as you're feeling good, I don't think you necessarily need to get blood testing done all the time, but especially when you're kind of like, if you feel like crap and you don't know why, like blood testing can be a really accurate way to figure that out, to really implement an appropriate strategy to improve your health and performance at the end of the day. Yeah.
0: When I had my testosterone, the time when I had my testosterone super high, it was like 988 nanograms okay. per my estrogen was also very high and it was outside of the reference range high as well. And I was like, all right, well, is this something to really care about? Because I mean, I feel yes. freaking amazing. Like I feel like very, very motivated, very driven, good muscle building, like potential libido, everything was great. You know, that's an example. Like a guy might read the blood work, see that the, the female hormone is so high And freak out, but really like Mm -hmm. both you and I know estrogen is highly beneficial for men. Like let's let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. That's actually a really good point. You know, like, you know, estrogen gets a really bad rap because, you know, it has detrimental effects to some degree. It can suppress testosterone production like you know estrogen binds to the estrogen receptors in the hypothalamus to actually shut down gonadotropic releasing hormone which you know eventually kind of shuts down testosterone production but What's more important is the ratio of testosterone to estrogen. And now I'm not super like well-versed in the exact, you know, ratios that our doctors are shooting for nowadays. But I do know that like, if you have good testosterone levels, you're going to have good estrogen levels, typically speaking as well, unless you're doing something kind of off where you want to worry about estrogen levels is when your estrogen is like, say twice as high as your testosterone levels, like within the reference range. And that's what I mean by that. And so, yeah, like, I'm not, I don't do really anything. In order to specifically lower estrogen, I use Tonkat Ali occasionally, you know, like I kind of somewhat struggle with kind of like kind of the residual effects of some of the PED use that I used to have used to utilize. And so like I'll use Tonkat Ali occasionally when I feel the need to, to kind of like improve mood a little bit, improve motivation. But what I've realized is when I take Tonkat Ali too much, it actually will hurt and hinder my joint health. Like I get like my right knee specifically, if I take Tonkat Ali for several weeks in a row, my right knee will start acting up and I'll start getting achy and my squats will kind of be a little bit off. And so like estrogen is super important. Yes. For overall health, but it's also super important for like heart health specifically and joint health. And so like when you suppress it too much, you can actually have detrimental effects in those areas.
0: Yeah, it's really important. And that's really interesting that you got that effect from Tonkara Ali. I wonder if it was uh, if it was sparked with an aromatase inhibitor.
1: <laughs> I can... Well, Tonkat Ali has some aromatase inhibitory properties to it. Now it's arguable as to like how strong it is as an anti-aromatase. It's actually comparable to tamoxifen in a couple of different studies when it comes to selective estrogen receptor modulation. And so it blocks the estrogen receptors and blocks estrogen from actually binding to the estrogen receptors, which actually is arguably the primary means by which Tonkat Ali actually increases testosterone is actually by tricking your brain into thinking, Hey, we don't have enough estrogen. Therefore we need to produce more testosterone in order to get more estrogen, because that's how men produce estrogen is by producing testosterone and then converting it into estrogen. And so, you know, tonka Ali has some fairly potent anti-estrogenic properties to it, which in some guys can actually be a detriment. So like, it's, it's super important especially when you're utilizing herbal supplements that have some potent properties to them to get some testing, to actually figure out, is this something for me? You know, like if you don't have high cortisol, you probably shouldn't be taking ashwagandha because it's going to make you more tired. You know, if you have low or normal estrogen, taking Tonkat can actually have detrimental effects on, on circulation and joint health. And so it's very, very context dependent, which again is one of the reasons why, you know, blood work is so important.
0: I'll never forget my first experience with Tonka Dali when I first tried it. It was literally like it was the honeymoon week where I just felt so good. And I remember actually um, I had a double date lined up. One of my mates brought his girl, like his girlfriend and I, was, I had a, a new girl I was trying to impress that night. And I remember making, I was in one of those moods where I was like extremely like hyper confident but really sarcastic and in joker mode. So it was like the combination of like, surging like testosterone like, <laughs> with the best sense of and i was just i was in the i was in the mood to just make jokes the whole night nothing i said was like serious and i remember i remember cracking a joke and the girl that i was like dating she laughed so hard she spat water into my and my mate's, <laughs> my mate's friend it was so good i'll never forget That's that
1: hilarious man yeah yeah there's definitely like I enjoy like herbal supplementation like it's definitely like a tool and the tool belt because <laughs> like there's positives to it you know but like I think to some degree you should look at like herbal supplementation as like medicinal supplements to some degree, you know, like medicine, I don't think really should be taken forever. You know, like it's like a a temporary solution to a temporary problem whereby you're kind of like backtracking a little bit. So you say you have an issue, you take the supplement and then kind of backtrack a little bit to assess, okay, what in my life is actually causing this symptom? You know what I mean? And that's why I've kind of like shifted my personal supplementation strategy more to like nutrients, as opposed to like herbs, like, again, I'm a still a big fan of like herbal supplementation, but like prioritizing macronutrients. So your, your proteins, your fats, or carbs, um, your micronutrients. So all of your vitamins, your minerals, focusing on those things. And then even going beyond that to focusing on like you know, like phosphatidylserine and your phospholipids and choline intake and even like singular amino acids like taurine, which I know you're a huge fan of. Like, what was your experience with taurine?
0: When I was putting together the protocol, like to massively increase my testosterone, taurine was a staple. I was using about uh, 3,000 to 4,000 milligrams of taurine, but I was using it literally daily for months. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure that would have We've seen studies suggesting that it can upregulate steroidogenic enzymes in in rats
1: and
0: protecting against oxidative damage in the testes, just like many of the other antioxidants that we use. Yeah, no, I love taurine. I think that was also, like, I find it extremely anxiolytic as well, like, it has a very pronounced anti-anxiety effect and it also warms up my body as well. Like, I do notice feeling warmer when I use taurine as well.
1: Yeah, I kind of feel like that might be like an effect of a lot of like GABAergic compounds. You know what I mean? Like I know Taurine is very GABAergic in its in its activity. Like alcohol, for instance, is very similar in that regard. In that you know, to the primary neurological activities of alcohol are its gabinergic effects and its dopaminergic effects. Mm -hmm. But like, that's one of the pronounced effects of alcohol. When you're cold, you drink alcohol. It's like, boom, you're not cold anymore. And I think a large portion of that might be due to the, the, you know, the gabinergic effect.
0: Do you think maybe, like, I was thinking about that as well. I was been trying to brainstorm this as well. Like the anti-adrenaline effects of like taurine, Mm phosphatidylserine. like, do you think think adrenaline would make the body cold because it's vasoconstrictive
1: yeah i mean that's a good point too you know like it's vasoconstrictive so it's going to like draw blood away from the skin and kind of divert it to organ systems and things of that nature you know like that's one of the reasons why i think it's important to if you're going to be consuming like caffeine or really any stimulant before a workout like stack it with Things like citrulline, and I've become a huge fan of lately of like betaine nitrate, which betaine in and of itself as like an osmo regulator, which is going to you know increase fluid balance in the bloodstream. But when you kind of complex the betaine with the nitrate, it causes some super potent like vasodilation, which is going to kind of combat the vasoconstrictive effects of caffeine, so that you still get the neurologically stimulating effects of caffeine, but it doesn't have those negative effects on circulation during a workout, which is you know what you want at the end of the day
0: actually that reminds me i came across a well i think it's going to be a hot new creatine um it's the precursor of creatine which no one knows about have so, um, mm. you heard of it, it's a guanadacinic acid gaa oh interesting uh, yeah and there's like a, there's a company i think is in over in europe and they've, they've like combined creatine with gaa And they Mm. did like a head-to-head study comparing the combination versus just creatine by itself and massive increases in muscle creatine, no bloating or water retention. I was like, dude, Mm. this is like, this is literally, I know creatine monohydrate is the gold standard, but this is like, how does it even go beyond the gold standard?
1: (laughs) (laughs) The platinum standard. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I've never actually heard of that before. I'm going to have to do some research on that. Like I'm a hyper responder to creatine. Like I notice creatine the day I take it. Like one, it's neurologically stimulating, but also I think it's a methyl donor. And so I am positive for one of the MTHFR mutations, which makes me, you know, have worse methylation in the body. And so like, that ends up having a detrimental effect on homocysteine levels and mood as well. And so like I'm a hyper responder to creatine in that, like it improves my mood almost immediately after I take it, which could be because of the methylation, but it also could be because of the, you know, the stimulation of the NMDA receptor, which, you know, creatine has been well-established to kind of like cause that cascade of events within the central nervous system, similar to like deaspartic acid, which I'm not sure if you are super familiar with deaspartic acid, but I've kind of like hopped on a deaspartic acid train as of late. Like how I didn't used to be a very big fan of it, but I was digging into some research specifically on like, it actually appears to be effective in hypogonadal men specifically. And so... Like it doesn't appear to be effective in men long-term that aren't hypogonadal, but it does have some yeah. acute effect. And it also appears to have that similar mechanism to creatine in that it stimulates the NMDA receptor, which is, you know, good for overall alertness and cognition and memory consolidation during the day specifically, you know?
0: Yeah. No, it's awesome. Actually, that reminds me. I think one of my early Instagram reels was like, creatine similar to ketamine exerts an antidepressant effect through some sort of similar pathway i was like yeah. yeah and then also creatine enhances the
1: antidepressant
0: efficacy of ssris so like
1: yeah pretty cool that's super interesting yeah and those mechanisms kind of confuse me a little bit yeah i, I think they're I'd have to brush myself up on, on the research, but yeah, it's super interesting that there's a somewhat of a good correlation with creatine and depression and mood. And again, I don't think in the research it's super clear as to what the exact mechanism is, but there definitely seems to be some clear, some clear association with creatine and mood, which I do think it's somewhat interesting.
0: Well, just think about it like this. If creatine is acting as like energy substrate, yeah. depression usually it's, it's usually seldom melancholic, like, flat mood or like it's a hypometabolic state in the brain so it just makes sense mm. like anything that's going to feed ATP yeah. would enhance neurotransmitter synthesis release just like d ribose have you ever used um d ribose mm.
1: I've never personally used it what's your experience with it oh man that stuff is super potent like for like baseline
0: energy and mood actually I combined d ribose once with uh, uridine and a small amount of bromantane, And I was definitely hypomanic. I, I, I <laughs> yeah, I slept like, I was sleeping like six hours a night and I just had so much energy and I was just pumping out content. Um, <laughs> but yeah, give d ribose a shot. Like if you five to 10 grams a day for like a month mm-hmm. and you will notice an energy boost from that.
1: So what ribose D-Ribos? D-Ribos is a carbohydrate, right? It's a naturally
0: brewing like sugar.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And oh, it's interesting.
0: Like, it's an energy, like it's literally what they give to patients that have had heart attacks, like recovering from mm. cardiovascular complications. They load them up on D-ribose. It's, it's one of the first and foremost, like well-studied supplements for like chronic
1: fatigue syndrome. Um, so fascinating. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, you brought up Uridine too. Are you a fan of Uridine? Do you do that regularly?
0: Uridine changed my life. It really did. Like I I don't use it anymore because I know the state that it can get me in, but like the state that it got me in, like to actually build my business and like mm. get shit done and just turn me into an absolute workhorse where like it got me to the point where like I would finish tasks. Like I literally kick off things on my task list and then I'd be like, Oh, I want more. Like, give me more work. <laughs> I was like looking for more work to do, and then also I remember one time using uridine just before going to like a social event with some friends, and mm-hmm. the verbal fluency was mm-hmm. insane. I felt like I was talking at a million miles an hour, and I just felt like I could access the words super quickly and really easily. It was just amazing. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm a huge fan of uridine. Like that's one of my my top nootropics, like for sure. Like phosphatidylserine and then uridine, I think are like a match made in heaven, you know? Like phosphatidylserine tends to be somewhat inhibitory to some degree, and then when you combine it with the uridine and they're both kind of like involved in that phospholipid production kind of pathway within the brain and they both individually kind of have like effects on nerve growth factors and dendritic outreach of nerves, so like nerves trying to actually communicate with other nerves like that's why i'm such a huge fan of like phosphatidylserine and uridine specifically is because not only do they give you like a potent like noticeable effect in the moment of like oh man like this is improving my cognition like in real time but they also appear to long term improve the connections of neurons within the brain which i think is super super interesting and it's like one of the downsides with you know taking things like 5-HTP and even possibly like, you know, alpha GPC and mucunipureans, which provides L-DOPA, you know, like when you have those direct precursor molecules to those neurotransmitters, it kind of, you know, short circuits that metabolic pathway that you're typically uses to produce those substrates and long-term actually has a detrimental effect. Whereas like uridine and phosphatidylserine are like different in that they're actually like, appear to be nutrients that your nerves are using in order to grow and connect and create new pathways, which I think is super fascinating.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, man. Like I love looking at like uridine and some of these nootropics is like, it's a true nootropic because it's compounding benefits over time. Like you're getting, yeah. you're seeing benefits. And then also like, I remember when I was looking into uridine, number one, yes, it enhances dopamine, potassium evokes like dopamine release, lowering yeah. actin, and then also what was the other study it was oh yeah potentiating the effects of stimulants as well mm-hmm. So like if you're a coffee drinker and you've lost that sensitivity to like stimulants you know you can use a small dose and i found there was like a biphasic effect with uridine if you mega dose it above like 600 milligrams for example mm-hmm. say good night like you're going to sleep whereas like <laughs> low doses below 150 milligrams yeah that's super stimulating for me
1: yeah. That's fascinating. So you say below 200, is that what your um, magic spot is? For me because I've used it so much now, like anything
0: less than 150 milligrams is fine, but that's also contingent upon like how many eggs I'm eating per day. Cause like mm-hmm. if I'm eating like two or three eggs a day, I don't need as much uridine. Like I only need mm-hmm. a little bit because then eventually like you run into like the choline dominance, like the choline mm-hmm. excess
1: symptoms, Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. A lot of people don't talk about that, you know, like when you increase acetylcholine too much, whether that be through like alpha GPC or huperzine A, I mean, any choline precursor for that matter, you know, like it's like almost like a depression, to be quite frank, you know, it's like it increases the learning ability. And a lot of people don't realize this too, but like, Acetylcholine actually has a lot of inhibitory properties to it. Like acetylcholine is intricately involved in like digestion, which is your rest and digest, you know, you know, pathway in your nervous system. And so when you activate the acetylcholine pathway, it can be inhibitory if you overdo it. Like now, I'm not sure if we're supposed to get this deep into like the biochemistry of all this type of stuff, but hopefully your listeners enjoy this. They're going to love this. this. Okay, good, good. but like there's the mucineric, i think is how you pronounce it yeah muscarinic yeah yeah you have those and then you have your nicotinic receptors for acetylcholine the nicotinic are what nicotine binds to and but acetylcholine binds to both of those receptors when it binds to the nicotinic receptors it's stimulatory whereas when it binds to the other receptors it's very inhibitory and so when you increase acetylcholine theoretically you're going to stimulate both of those receptors but at the end of the day when you stimulate both of them there's overall an inhibitory response within the body and so like i'm not a huge fan of like i don't take alpha gpc because it one destroys my mood and two gives me a splitting headache that i can't get rid of for like 48 hours you know because i'm naturally a high producer of acetylcholine. Now. I'm also a naturally high producer of serotonin, which is why I respond so well to dopaminergic compounds because I don't produce as much dopamine. Like my neurochemistry is super interesting. So like I respond super well to dopaminergic compounds because it helps to increase executive functioning. But when I increase acetylcholine it destroys my mood, destroys just everything. So um yeah. I think it's important to really kind of grasp that like not everyone responds the same to nootropics at the end of the day because everyone's biochemistry is so different
0: yeah and i'm not going to mention names but there's formulas out there that i see where they're mega dosing like well they're adding in like 600 milligrams of alpha gpc or like and they're recommending like up to two capsules a day for example just ridiculously high doses and i'm just like well you're gonna achieve you know a good effect on maybe like learning and memory but man like after three four days back to back dosing. oh
1: man yeah and here's another thing too like huperzine has like a half-life of like 20 hours which yeah. means 40 hours after you take it you still got like 75 percent of it in your in your bloodstream you know so like taking that several times a week like it has a compounding effect and it can just dis- like shoot your acetylcholine levels through the roof and like you might not notice it the first few times that you take it, but then like what I've noticed, at least is like, you take it and you're like, oh man, this is like, this is good. But then that compounding effect takes over and two weeks down the road, you're like, man, I feel like garbage. Like, why do I feel like trash so much? And it's because the acetylcholine is just like super through the roof, which again is like one of the reasons why I've kind of backed off my approach on herbal supplementation because I would rather provide my body with the nutrients that it needs through, you know, the diet and supplementation if needed, than kind of like start screwing with all these metabolic pathways on a regular basis and not realizing what the downstream effects might be in the future. It's just hard to predict that, you know? And so I think again, going back to the same idea of like acute supplementation when needed. Yeah, for
0: sure. So Zach, I'm just conscious of time. Maybe... We're going to wrap up soon. I'm definitely going to have to get you back on the podcast again because we've we've been down so many different rabbit holes.
1: (laughs) We've jumped around quite a bit. We have.
0: (laughs) Um, But I do want to give you the chance, you know, let my listeners know where they can connect with you online and also potentially some of the new resources that you're developing as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, you can definitely find me on YouTube. That's kind of my primary means by which I create content at Nutrition Library. And then you can also find me on Instagram and TikTok as of late. So I'm trying to branch out into some some newer modes of content distribution just to reach different audiences, but you can also find me on nutrilibrary.com which is spelled N U T R I library.com and yeah been really focusing a lot lately on on just supplementation but developing resources for men specifically to kind of hone their supplementation regimen kind of figure out what supplements are good for men what supplements are not good for men how to prioritize a proper stack for your specific needs and so a lot of resources been pumping out lately so i'm excited
0: yeah. awesome awesome that was uh, great chatting zach and um we'll definitely be in touch and um Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I look forward to seeing you in another episode. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology.
1: This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.